Welcome in, everybody, to episode 222 of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Hope everyone had a great Super Bowl Sunday. I, of course, recorded the last episode before the Super Bowl. Hope you guys enjoyed the game. Hope you had the Chiefs. Hope you ate well. Hope you drank well. Hope you had fun. Hope your hangover at work wasn't too bad on Monday. By the way, speaking of Monday, if you missed Monday, great episode. Did a lot of college hoops talk. But also, Joey Bosa, LA Chargers, joined the show. We talked about growing up with his brother, Nick, who of course plays for the 49ers. We talked about him playing at Ohio State with Joe Burrow and his thoughts on the Buckeyes. We talked about life after Phillip Rivers with the Chargers. So really great interview. Last week I had Jalen Smith from the Dallas Cowboys and it's been a really fun couple weeks of episodes. Now, today, Thursday, what's today? The 6th? I don't even know because I'm talking to you from the future. I mentioned this earlier, but I am actually traveling this week And so rather than bring all my equipment with me, it's just something I wasn't going to do. And so as an alternative, there will be no kind of sports talk today because I'm pre-recording this before I travel. It's going to be a very special episode with the two gentlemen who were responsible for capturing Pablo Escobar, the noted famed drug kingpin. And so a little bit of a backstory here. Um, First of all, I love the show Narcos. The new season of Narcos comes out season five, but the first two seasons, and for people who have, haven't have seen the show, it's not a documentary. It's basically like a live action series played by actors, but it's a very historical retelling of the capture of Pablo Escobar. And so seasons one and two focus on the two DEA agents who are pursuing Pablo Escobar. Their names are Javier Pena, Stephen Murphy. They are two real people that really exist, that really did work for the DEA, that really did move to Colombia, uprooted their lives to pursue Pablo Escobar. Well, guess what? Those two guys have a new book out, and they are coming on this show over the next hour to promote the book and talk about Manhunters, their book about the pursuit of Pablo Escobar. And just in general, you know, the, the their lives and what it was like to be in Colombia during that time, it is a crazy, wide-ranging interview. I guarantee you haven't heard anything like this anywhere else, and it is completely different than something that I would normally do on this show. But I think, like I said, because I was traveling, I did want to do something for you guys, and I thought this was kind of cool. So for one day, there will be no basketball talk. There will be no real sports talk. Uh, with these two gentlemen, but it was so unique, it was so different, and it was so fun that I just thought it would be really cool to do this for you guys. So again, Stephen Murphy, Javier Pena, they are the two gentlemen in real life who went to Colombia in the late 80s and early 90s, lived in Colombia, and pursued Pablo Escobar. Their book, which is now out, is called Manhunters, Capturing Pablo Escobar. And again, it is, or excuse me, Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. It's a great read. I encourage you to check it out. But again, these are the two gentlemen that were really there that really did pursue it. So I'm not going to take any more time. I am traveling. I will be back Monday with a regular episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. By the way, I would love for you guys to either hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, uh, email Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com to let me know what you thought of this interview. Again, it's completely different, something we wouldn't normally do, something I'm not going to continue to do. Most of this show is sports, but I just figured with the new season of Narcos coming out, and for those of you who watch Narcos, I know millions of people have watched them. I'm guessing a lot of you guys have. 
These are the real people in Colombia. So without further ado, here are Stephen Murphy and Javier Pena talking about their book, Manhunters, how we took down Pablo Escobar. And of course, they are, in fact, the guys that were there. It was an awesome interview. It was a fun interview. Thank you, guys. Here's the interview. I will be back Monday. Enjoy. All right, and joining me on the phone now, uh, two very, very special guests. Um, if you guys watch Narcos, Season 5 is coming out here on February 13th, I believe. And if you followed the show, you kind of know it started with the Medellin cartel in Colombia, Pablo Escobar, um, and it's transitioned to, to Mexico. I bring that up because the two gentlemen that from the American side of things, from the DEA, the two guys that were in charge of helping Bring Down Pablo Escobar, Stephen Murphy, Javier Pena. They have a new book out called Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar, and they are joining the show. Gentlemen, I am so fired up. Thank you. How are you both doing today? Go ahead. Very really good. Thank you, brother. We <laughs> appreciate it. We're happy to be here. Yeah, Aaron, thanks for having us on the show, man. We really do appreciate this. Well, it, it is my absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, first time I'm doing uh, two two guys on the phone at once here. So we'll, we'll make it work here. And I guess I'll, I'll start with you, Steve, and we'll go to Javier and we'll kind of piggyback back and forth. But I guess I kind of want to start at the end and kind of work my way backwards. I want to talk about both of your time in Col uh, Colombia and all that. But I do want to also kind of talk about the, the show Narcos. And, and I would start with you, Steve, is – what is the first, I mean, your, your guy's story and the Pablo Escobar story has been told and retold and retold many times over the last 25 years, some of them more accurately than others. What was the first call or email or whatever it was, uh, and what was kind of the pitch to you? And I'll start with you, Stephen, on that one. Okay. Well, um, Jaime and I were both, uh, it was 2013. Um, in federal law enforcement, the mandatory retirement age is 57, and Javier and I were both 56 that year, and um, we were we were at the highest ranks you can get in DEA without going to a presidential appointment, which means that the administrator can give you a three-year extension to age 60. And she had offered that, and we both accepted because, you know, at the time I had two daughters in college, so <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I needed the income to pay for that sure. college, right? Sure. So um, in, in February of 13, we get a phone call, a guy named... Eric Newman, he's the creator of Narcos, the executive producer, just a super guy. We get introduced to him by a mutual contact, and uh, he kind of pitches the idea to us. And, you know, we thought about it. We're like, no, nah, we're not interested. Really? And I, I'm pretty sure he fell out of his chair when we told him that. <laughs> but, um, and what had happened is a couple of years earlier, a friend of mine in Washington had introduced us to two other Hollywood producers. They were interested in our story, but when we met with them, it turns out they wanted to take our story. They had their own personal agenda in mind, and they wanted to make political statements. Oh, wow. And that's not what we, you know, we never wanted to do that. We just, actually, we never wanted to do anything, because we didn't think anybody would ever be interested in hearing the true story about Pablo. Sure. So, when we told Eric no, he's like, well, <laughs> after we cooked, he said, well, if I come to Washington, would you just have dinner with me? And he said, I'd like to bring two writers let us tell you about our concept, and if you say no, it's no, but you know, at least give us a chance. And honestly, Aaron, I'm thinking, if these guys are coming out to take us to dinner, this is going to be a nice restaurant, it's going to be a free <laughs> meal, yes, I'll go. Sure. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what happened. Well, before they got there, Javier and I did our research on them, you know, and, and found out that Eric, Eric's father is Randy Newman, who's famous for learning a lot of the songs for some of the older movies out there. 
these guys are all well-educated, they're successful in Hollywood, and when we met, our personalities just kind of clicked. You know, I mean, you can tell I'm kind of an idiot and, and like to have fun in there the same way. And uh, Javier and I talked about it, and they said at the end of the night, said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, let us discuss it, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe we want to move forward and let's see what happens. And they're like, great, great, okay. One other question, why are you guys so hesitant to do this with your story? Hmm. And we made it plain to Eric that night. The last thing we wanted anybody to ever do was create something that would glorify Pablo Escobar. Because this guy's nothing more than a mass murderer, Yep, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how it all happened, believe it or not. Fantastic. Javier, similar thing. I mean, you just, I I assume to piggyback off Steve's comments, you guys are trading phone calls and emails and and stuff like that just to kind of make sure these guys, I don't don't want to say they're not legit, but I I don't know what the right word is, but that they're going to accurately tell the story. Yeah, we, and uh, after, like I said, talking uh, with Eric and, uh, like I said, the writers, we flew up there, we told, uh, we sat with them for about, I don't know, a couple of weeks and just told him the actual uh, true story of uh, the search for Pablo Escobar. You know, our involvement with the Colombian National Police, when we got there, what we did with them, um, you know, we were pretty much embedded with them, um, you know, uh, slept there, ate there. So, you know what, and, and they're righteous guys. They've had a lot of other movies under their belt, uh, TV series under their belt, so those guys are, are, are seasoned, and they were fun uh, fun to work with, and uh, I said, we, we got along great with them. All right, so let's get a little bit into your time in Colombia, and it's really interesting. I was thinking about this, guys, as I got set to do this interview. I, I We kind of know about Pablo Escobar as this guy at the height of his powers, and then, of course, the downfall that you guys uh, were very much a part of and, and responsible for along with the Colombian officials really quickly and I was thinking about this and I'll throw this to you Steve um, when did kind of Pablo Escobar first come on the U.S. the, the radar of the U.S. government because I was kind of reading about him I saw that he was kind of this low-level criminal that slowly slowly rose up the ranks uh, and it's I, I just didn't really know how long he had been in the crosshairs before uh, the first wave of kind of U.S. officials got down to Colombia. And there was there was information he was smuggling electronics into Colombia and things like that. He saw how much money people were making in the cocaine business, so he he did a small deal with an acquaintance of his in Medellin. It went very well, and it wasn't long after that he killed that guy. Oh, and that's how he started moving up. And you know, his his mental capacity, his psyche was such that killing you know caused him no remorse. He had no guilt feelings. Um, he and, uh, personally, I think he really enjoyed having that that power, which caused his ego to grow. You know, yeah. and uh, he was because of that ruthlessness, he was able to just take out the competition. And you know, then people started fearing him because they knew he if they <laughs> if they stood up to him, he would just have him killed or he'd kill him himself. So that's kind of how he got involved in it. The uh, uh, there's a picture that was hanging in his prison, his custom-built prison, of him and his son standing in front of the White House. Okay. Now, we, by the son's age, we estimate that was uh, probably the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy, he had no fear. Wow. <laughs> we tell our audiences that, uh, you know, Pablo, if you watch the show Narcos in the opening trailer, the guy that plays Murphy is Boyd Holbrook, and, and Pedro Pascal played Javier. And, I mean, these guys are fantastic. We got to be good friends with them. And, still stay in touch with him. The last line in the opening trailer of season one of Narcos, Boyd Holbrook says, we didn't know what we were in for. And that is absolutely true. I mean, 
Pablo introduced a business model of drug trafficking that made him responsible eventually for 80% of the world's cocaine. I mean, think about that, Aaron. Would you like to have 80% of the sports market on your show? <laughs> yeah, I would. Holy it cow. <laughs> I would. That's a monopoly, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so okay, so that that is insane, and I, I didn't even realize all that kind of background. Javier, you got to Colombia prior to Steve, and so I'll start with you. Steve, it's kind of crazy. We'll get into when you got there and all the stuff that was going on in a minute, but w- one of the things that stands out to me when I watch the show is that in the producers and people behind the scenes do a great job with it, is you can feel the tension in the air like every moment of every day. And I assume, and you know, I'm just a regular civilian, but uh, I assume it, that was basically your life. It, the, the, the tension that we felt uh, on the screen was your everyday life, Javier. Yes, that is correct. The, the, the tension, the stress level... And like I said, every day was a new occurrence. Something was gonna happen. You could predict. All right, what's what's he? You know, what's he gonna do now? And when he would do this, like, what did he do? What he wow. blew up on an airplane? He put a bomb on a commercial airline. It, it was something that was surreal. Something that you couldn't make it up. Uh, not even the movies could get that uh, correct. You know. And, uh, you know, then the, then the car bomb started. And, and this is why I tell people that was, to me, that was the most dangerous aspect of being there because you never knew who those car bombs, uh, would be, uh, blown up. And they were getting blown up, I don't know, 10, 10 car bombs a day. Uh, you know, putting them, he put some outside our base when we would leave. So th- that stress factor, but it, it was just the, the uh, that, uh, that factor of what did he do? What he killed the next president of Colombia? He, you know, what I'm saying he killed the attorney general. Uh, killed the, you know, the, look at those car bombs. He put one. Uh, he put one at a bookstore where the kids and parents were getting their supplies. So it, it was that unknown factor of violence, that unknown factor of terrorism that was always in the back of your mind and uh, you know it it, it it was happening every day so it, it was something that we were not used to it you know we're we're you know we were you know our job is we arrest traffickers you know when we do a a buy bust you know i got 20 guys with me we arrest the guy <laughs> sure. puts his hands up you know and we take him to jail and that's it but not this guy so it was something that we had never seen before that was the problem and so, Stephen, I'll just kind of let you piggyback off that. But, I mean, it, it, what was it? Was there such a thing as a normal day in your lives at that point? Or was it, uh, you know, I don't know. I'll just kind of throw it out there. Was there a normal day? What was? Your, what did your day entail as, again, and I don't, I don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, facetious about this, but you were uh, tailing the, the most dangerous criminal in the world? Well... <laughs> You know what uh, was abnormal for everybody in the world became normal for Javier and I. Sure. So when you know when you went there, we neither one of us. He got there in 1988. I got there in 1991. Um, I was there three years. Javier was there six and a half years. And by the way, he went back in the late 90s for two more years oh. when they took down the Cali Park Bell. Okay. So, um, but uh, you know, so you don't know what what case you're going to be assigned to until you get in country. And they didn't just send us down there. You had to volunteer to go down there. Okay. So uh, I knew who Pablo was from my days in Miami. Yeah, I've been there for four years. And 
uh, you know, you're thinking, well, heck, if, if we're going to be DEA agents, you know, you want to get to the highest echelon of a drug trafficking organization that you can. And, of course, at that time, that was Pablo Escobar. He was dropped over the entire cocaine market. Um, now, one thing also, when you first get there, they tell you there's a $300,000 price tag on your head just simply because you're a DEA agent in the country. So uh, when I got there in 1991, three days after I arrived in Colombia, is when Pablo surrendered. Sure. Well, that gave me an opportunity to become friends with Javier and, and learn about more about what he was involved with, the main cartel. And I knew a lot about Pablo already, but I'd never worked a case that directly led to him. It was always laid down the food chain in his organization when I was in Miami. But then when Pablo uh, escaped from his jail in, in June 1992, that's when, you know, the very next day is when Javier and I flew to Medellin. We started living in Medellin for the next 18 months with the Colombian National Police, uh, working every day with them. You know, we would take turns sometimes. One of us would be in Bogota, the other would be in Medellin. <clears throat> but that's when it's, that's when the, the risk factor really went up. I mean, we're going out on these huge gunships with the Columbia National Police. You're going in doing raids. We're out doing surveillance with them. Um, it was, at, at first it was a little nerve-wracking, but it becomes extremely exciting. It's an adrenaline rush, to be honest with you. Sure. Um, you know, we're, we, we're not pretending to be tough guys or anything like that. You know, don't, don't get me wrong on this. We're just a couple of small-town country boys is what we are. But we got to work the case of a lifetime. And because... You're continuously under those threats like that. It becomes normal. Believe it or not, as as crazy as that sounds, your norm now is living in this life of danger. Um, you know, not to mention my wife is back in Bogota by herself, so she's facing an element of danger. She's able to cope with it. So it's it's kind of hard to explain unless you've gone through something like that. Sure. But what everybody else thought was extremely crazy, that was our normal life while we were chasing Pablo. No, a hundred percent, and and that was something you know that that I've heard uh, you guys say in other interviews and stuff like this. And so I want to set it up, and then Javier, I'll I'll, I'll piggyback to you um, for people who don't really know the story, because Stephen just brought up like a very like to me a fascinating point of this whole thing is that there was a time in the pursuit of Pablo Escobar when you kind of knew who he was, when he was on the radar of the Colombian government, of the U.S. government, of really the international government, where he actually turned himself into authorities. And he did it under the condition that he would go to a prison that he built himself, uh, armed by his own guards, uh, that he hired himself, uh, and it was very much from... Everything I've read, seen, and on the show, if you've watched the show, uh, it was like a, basically a resort. So, Javier, I know, well, I think you actually slept in Pablo's bed for a night or two after you guys raided the place, but uh, tell us about La Catedral, which is uh, the the prison that, that Pablo, when he did surrender to police for a time being, uh, tell us a little bit about what the accommodations were like at that place. Yeah, great question. And you know what? It, it was not a prison. It was... Uh, it was a country club, of course. He called it the Cathedral, La Catedral. And uh, there was one set of bars, but it was just for show. That's all it was. It was just for show. But once, once you got in, I mean, uh, it was something we knew that he wasn't, uh, you know, in a jail-like uh, environment. But, however, when we got there, we realized, hey, this is a country club. Sure. You know, he had his own apartment, uh built inside, you know, he had his kitchen, he had a living room, he had his uh, bedroom, 
all sorts of uh, luxuries. You know, the big TVs back then. The, remember the the Sony's, the uh, sixty-inch Sony. Nobody could get them. If you buy one, it'd be four or five thousand. You know, he had them all over the place. The nice refrigerators, microwaves. Uh, I mean, it, it was a country club environment. He had a desk. He had a sitting area where he'd entertain uh, visitors. And the terrace he had right outside his uh, his uh, apartment there at the prison, at the so-called prison, overlooked the city of Medellin. It was just a breathtaking, you know, the mountains and the city of Medellin. Then you would go to the another part and be the apartments inside for the prisoners. You know, again, all luxury. And then one thing that we realized is like, well, what's up there on the side of the mountain? It was Chalais. He had built that he called them Chalais. He, how did he do it? I mean, it got past everybody, including us. But right outside the prison, you would walk some stairs and built in, built into the side of the mountain, were this beautiful, they call them chalets, that overlooked, again, it was beautiful wood, flowers, structures, I, I think he had about six or seven of them, but, you know, that were built, and they would camouflage them, so you really couldn't tell from the outside. So, I mean, you know, it was all luxury, then we found the bar, you know, uh, <laughs> music, uh, he had a drum set, he had all sorts of liquor at the, at the, at the bar inside the prison, then, uh, we discovered a lot of, you know, women's clothing, the negligees, you know, then uh, pictures of of them partying and letters, letters. And this one, uh, it's it's hard to explain, but it's letters of, of uh, women offering their daughters, which is pathetic, you know. Yeah. I take it for the weekend, here's my daughter. Uh, of course, they're expecting a lot of money for that. But, I mean, it, it, it was just, in, uh, he had in his office all the articles that had been written about him. Uh, so he had uh, just, uh, you know, a lot of great paintings, too. We tell uh, people, uh, he had a Dolly originals, Botero wow. paintings. If you're from Colombia, Botero's famous, uh, you know, for doing the paintings, the statues. I mean, it was all original artwork into the millions and millions of dollars uh, that he had. So it, it, it was not a prison. It was just a country club uh, environment. He was living the life of uh, luxury till you know, till he he killed someone inside there, which prompted you know his uh, uh, the Colombian government to go and get him out of his uh, country club, which started the second war where he escaped. Uh, so, then, uh, like I said, it was not a prison. It was just a country club setting with all the modern amenities. And, you know, my question is, how did he get all this stuff up there? <laughs> the mountain. So, uh, it, it was just, you know, you know, money, money does it all. He had a, you know, one of the best telescopes we had ever seen. So he could, people said he could watch his family. I mean, it was just a, it, it was a facade. It, it, well, everything else was just uh just a facade. He was living in a country club. And the night you guys raided the place after he escaped, or I don't know if it's a raid if he's already escaped, but um, you slept in his bed, Pedro, uh, uh, Javier, right? Yeah, and it was, <laughs> it was funny. The colonel in charge of the, of the uh, search operation at the prison, they, they bet me. They bet you that you will sleep in his bed. They dared me. 
So it was more of a, you know what, of course I changed the sheets, of course. <laughs> uh, but it, it was, you know what, it was uncanny. I didn't sleep, I couldn't sleep. And you know what, I always stayed in my mind uh, on the wall right beside his bed. The picture of ceramic, ceramic picture titled of the Virgin Mary. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Here's a guy who's killing thousands and thousands of people who don't care, and he's got the Virgin Mary. Uh, that, to me, was always just like... Uh, uncanny so and and that actually leads to my next question because steven i actually saw you in another interview you brought up an interesting point there's become this narrative through the years that pablo was kind of this great family man and he could kind of compartmentalize uh you know his personal life from his quote-unquote professional life where as you guys have both alluded to he killed millions of people i heard you or thousands of people i've heard you say something really interesting on this steven i don't know if you remember saying it but about this concept that he's a family man and that you don't really buy it absolutely that's and that's it's a it's another myth you know um, i'm a a parent i have four children they're all adults now i have five granddaughters now and, and so think about like this, Aaron. If you're a devoted family man, this guy, first of all, has negotiated the plea bargain of a lifetime. Yep. I mean, you described the parameters there, that his, you know, the conditions to his, his uh, guilty plea. Some of the things that, that uh, are, were also included in that was that he got to pick which crime, one crime, <laughs> he wanted to plead to guilty to. But... And in exchange, was absolved of every crime, every other crime he committed in his entire life, including thousands of murders. Jeez. So it, it was just a joke. The plea agreement was just a joke. Okay, so now he's in his custom built prison, which I just explained to you. He's more of a country club uh, than a prison. It was, <laughs> there was nothing punitive, punitive about that prison whatsoever. He had his own private jacuzzi bathtub in his, wow. his so-called prison cell. You know, okay. What we have in the United States, we call group showers, right? Sure. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So, if, now he's in there. Oh, and by the way, there were no stipulations to take any of his assets. So this guy's not a multimillionaire. He's a multi-billionaire. Wow. So here's the deal. All he's got to do is five years in this country club prison that he built himself where he pays the guards and all that that goes along with it. He has, it, it was basically a revolving door on the front of that prison because he was going out. If he wanted to go to a new restaurant or he wanted to go watch a soccer game or he wanted to go spend a couple of days with his family, you know, he went, he came and went as he pleased. Hmm. So now back to the, being the devoted family man. If you're devoted to your family, all you got to do is five years in this country club. I mean, you could do that standing on your head. He's got all the luxuries. He's got the exotic foods, the alcohol. The hookers come in, all whatever he wants, he's got. So then, after five years, you are now a free man. You can watch your children grow up. You can watch them get married, have grandchildren. You can spoil them, and you still have your $30 billion in assets. If I'm a devoted family man, that's what I want to do is I want to be with my family. We all know that's not what he chose. You know, his ego was out of control. The Montana Galliano brothers came up there. He thought they achieved the amount of money. He tortures and kills them right there in the prison, which is what led to his escape. That's not what a devoted family man does. Sure. So we call BS on all those kind of myths like that, that uh, people want to make him out to be some type of Robin Hood hero. It's, it's just a joke. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. And so let's get into... The second situation, which, uh, you know, you guys kind of set up, but for people who maybe haven't seen the show, and you should be watching it, but if you haven't seen the show, the book, by the way, is called Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar, Stephen Murphy, and Javier Pena. So 
you know, you're chasing this guy, then he, um, you know, he, he uh, turns himself into the government. And then as you guys just alluded to, he then killed another person in prison and escapes from the prison as you guys pursue him. Javier, as soon as the escape is on, is it just, you know, right back into that old lifestyle that, you know, you had been there for a little bit longer? Is it just, okay, we're back full speed ahead and we're, we're taking this guy down for good this time? I mean, what happened after that escape? Yeah, and as soon as he escaped, uh, like and Steve mentioned and we mentioned, we were there the next day. And you know what? We were excited. We were happy. I was real. I was glad that he had escaped because it gave us another chance. And this time, we were adamant that we were going to win. So everybody's excited. It's it's a new era. Wow, we got the... A lot of uh, assets coming in, you know, we, uh, you know, the, uh, I tell people, we, you know, Delta guys arrived, SEAL team guys arrived from the U.S., great bunch of guys, you know, those are real heroes. However, the conditions were they could not leave the base. So that, I mean, but they helped out with a lot of intel. They would uh, identify where, where Pablo was, and then, uh, you know, what made it work, too, is uh, there's a colonel who's a real hero in Colombia, Colonel Hugo Martinez. He was not there when Pablo uh, uh, escaped. You know, when when Pablo surrendered, uh, this colonel, you know, I mean, Pablo hated the colonel, was trying to kill his family. So the colonel was moved out of the country when he surrendered. So as soon as the colonel came back, which was about a month afterwards, I mean, it, I mean, we were rocking and rolling, doing operations uh, every day. In the second search, basically, we were winning. Pablo Escobar was losing. Uh, he was not organized. He was still, he still had the, the terrorism. He was still killing bombs, but it wasn't, uh, he was very, like you said, he was trying to get organized, which did not happen, and, you know, there's a right-wing vigilante group called Los Pepes. I'm sure you've heard about it, Aaron, you yep. know, but it was, a, uh, again, this were traffickers made up of uh, traffickers that worked for the guy that Pablo Escobar killed. So they hated Pablo. So they were fighting him dirty, and Pablo was always trying to, he was afraid of the family. The Pepes were trying to kill his family members. They were able to kill about 30 of Escobar's. Wow. Top associates, friends, attorneys, yeah. And uh, the problem was it went too far. Uh, one of the killings, they killed a couple of the attorneys. They killed their kids with them, about 10 years old. That that was not good. And, uh, you know, uh, so Pablo, like I said, but the second search, basically, we were winning. He was losing. Again, it took us 18 months. We should have had him at the beginning, but... Like I said, it, it made a difference when uh, Colonel Martinez came back to the search block, and uh, uh, there's just a tons of stories we could <laughs> tell. But you know, a lot of times we were just so close to him, we would get to the mountainside of the. He, you know, the coffee was still warm, and he'd always have a, a coke with him. And and the uh, I hate to mention it, but I, I have to. But a younger lady sure. with him. Uh, so they would always be there. They tell us, "Yep, you heard the noise. You heard the noise of the choppers coming in." And, and if you've been to Medellin, it's a beautiful city, uh, mountainside, greenery. So to mount operations, you know, a lot of times we'd have to go in with the choppers and people on the ground. But by this time, he would hear it, or people would warn him. Uh, so that was always a a, a problem. Uh, 
uh, for us. But uh, again, he still had uh, he still had his empire, but not like it was in the beginning. He was starting to dwindle, and uh, you know, if you look at that uh, last day of his life, you know, he only had one bodyguard left, wow. and um, you know, he got shot, and obviously, you know, and obviously Steve Steve was there, but uh, but it it, it was. Uh, I think the the second search for us really we we learned a lot from the first one. We used a lot of uh, technology, uh, type of intelligence, a lot of human uh, intelligence. Steve and I we have an eight hundred number where we're offering reward five million dollars. So people were starting to call in. At the beginning, nobody. It was hard to get informants because everybody was afraid of Pablo Escobar. But at the second search, they knew he was invincible. That he wasn't that, you know, that uh, great uh, person who could not be touched. The second search, people started saying, "Hey, this guy's not untouchable." So we started getting a lot more uh, human information, like said, the technology, and then the intelligence coming from the United States was great. You know, all our offices had contributed. So, uh, but you know, I say we credit our, you know, we both credit Colonel Martinez for putting uh, uh, the search blog back together again. There's some great heroes in Colombia, General Octavio Vargas Silva. Uh, there, we could go on and on, and uh, but like you said, they're they're the real heroes in, in all of this. Fantastic. Uh, Javier just referenced it, Stephen, but Javier was out of the country the day that whatever piece of intelligence came in that you kind kind of figured out where he was. I, I would you take us through the fateful day? I don't know. Fateful is probably not the right word, but the day where you finally did capture, and of course, we all know what happened from there. Yeah. So, um, and first of all, just to clarify one point: if you've seen the show Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof there that day at the gunfight where he was killed. Uh-huh. That's Hollywood. That's not true. Okay. I was back at the base with Carl Martinez. Um, you know, the, the ambassador had Javier up in Miami tracking down a, a bogus lead up there. Um, so I'm back at the base, and there's a lot of theories out there. There's one book in particular that uh, will make you lead you to believe that an American special forces operator with a sniper rifle killed Pablo. Well, you know what? We did have the U.S. Army's Delta Force, and we had the U.S. Navy SEAL Team 6 with us for 18 months in Medellin. But that particular day, they were all at the base with me. And how do I know that? Because I was standing in the room talking mm-hmm. to these guys. Wow. You know, after living with them for 18 months, you get to be pretty good friends. And, you know, that was just part of your routine. You, you would check all your intel resources every day to see what's going on. And they were part of the intel resources. So not taking anything away from those guys whatsoever. I mean, I love them to death. I mean, we publicly say if we're ever kidnapped, those are the people we want to come and get us because they're that good. I mean, they're just unbelievably uh, specialized in their areas. But the truth is, it was not one of them that killed Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. So I'm in the room talking to them, and I'm standing in the doorway, and I see Tony Martinez's executive staff hurrying over to his office. So you knew something was going on when you saw something like that. And Hunter and I had such a good uh, working relationship with Colonel Martinez that we could go over, you know, and, and if it wasn't too sensitive or something that was not related to Escobar, he would invite us in. So I went to the doorway, and, and he motioned me to come on in. He's on the radio, and everybody's standing around very quiet listening. And one of the lieutenant colonels whispers over that they think they found Pablo. Well, next thing you know, you know Colonel Martinez is saying, hey, stand by. We're, we're going to mount the troops. Uh, make sure you don't lose him. If you have to act, do what you have to do, but if you don't have to, wait till we get there. Well, you know, we had 600 men in this in this search block. 
you can't load 600 people up in, in just a few minutes on the trucks and get them weaponized and assignments and all that. It takes a little bit of time. So what happened was the unit out there went ahead and engaged uh, Pablo because they were afraid he would escape. Uh, when they go inside, Javier start. Uh, Javier, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pablo starts shooting at them, and of course the firefight ensues. We all just assumed that Pablo would have numerous bodyguards like he always had, mm-hmm. not knowing he only had the one bodyguard that day. So as they, it's a three-story row house. As they progress up the steps, Pop, they're on the first floor. Pablo's on the second. Pablo makes a move to the third floor. His bodyguard jumps out the window um, first and onto the roof of a two-story row house behind him. As he's making his way across, the police had sent a couple of guys around back. So they ordered the guy to stop. He starts shooting at them. Uh, they shoot him, and, and he falls off the roof onto the ground. Pablo gets up to the third floor. Climbs out that same window under that two-story roof, tries to make his way across, and he realizes he's in a crossfire. Well, we surmise he realized he was going to be in a crossfire. So as he makes his way across, he finally gets to the point where the police are now in the window, and you got the heavy guys on the ground behind him. Um, and he shoots at the cops in the window, so they open up on him to catch him in a crossfire, and that's when Pablo was killed. And Hunter made a great, great point that we stress to anybody that will listen to us to listen to our stories, yes, we participate in the manhunt for Pablo Escobar, but we don't pretend to be the heroes. Mm-hmm. People call us that. That's a great title to have, to be quite honest with you, <laughs> especially after some of the names we've been called throughout our careers. <laughs> but the true heroes of this are the Colombian National Police sure. because they took their country back from this piece of dirt. Fair enough. That, that It's a great insight into to everything that happened. And... I would ask what, what I I don't even know where to go from there. Um, Javier, I mean, first, really quickly, I, I know you were in Miami, as Steve referenced. They they sent you up there thinking that there might be a lead up there. How did you get the news? Um, and then I, what I'm kind of curious about, you've spent multiple years of your life chasing this guy. What was the day after, like, when you woke up and you're like, wow, this is really done? So, Javier, I know you were in Miami, I believe, at the time. Go ahead. Right. Well, and you know what the irony of all of this is, uh, you know, who tells me that Pablo Escobar's kill was even for, but the ambassador had ordered me to go to Miami, how this informant got a hold of the ambassador, and this was a pretty famous informant, uh, matter of fact, who was a guy who was involved uh, with uh, Gotcha, you know, Jose Gonzalo Rodriguez Gotcha, when he was killed, this was the main informant, and he's written a book, so I, I could say it. Anyway, so... Uh, you know, and this guy's a famous, well-known, trustworthy informant. He only wanted to talk to me. So the ambassador orders me to go talk to him, and I try to explain to the ambassador, sir, we are very close we, to public. Well, we got his frequency. We're listening. He didn't care. Anyway, so when uh, the, the, the informant's on the phone, when I when I meet with him, he's at a warehouse, and he puts the phone down to the they just killed Pablo Escobar. So basically, I just, I didn't even talk to the floor. I turned around, the guys took me back to the airport. I flew back uh, to uh, Bogota, and then the next day, I go to Medellin, of course, you know, to go get Steve and congratulate, you know, the colonel, all the guys. I mean, for a great job. I mean, but it was, I I, I didn't think, you know what, it was one of those victories that is great. Yep, I was there. You know, like you said, at the beginning, he killed a lot of, a couple of good friends of mine. It was a victory for for Colombia, for the world, for the police, because they 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 got justice, and 
so it was a feeling that it's 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 an incredible feeling after working not for this long after seeing bodies get killed after seeing innocent people get killed then justice was finally served uh, that day in Medellin. Yeah, Stephen, I'll kind of just ask you the same question. I mean, do you like sit on a patio and drink a beer? Like, what do you do the day after you've been three years of your life, six years of Javier's chasing this guy and he's gone and you don't have to worry about him for, you know, for the first time in, in you know, a long time? So, so well, they, they, Javier flew up there. They, you know, they, he went around, saw everybody, and then they put us on a gunship, got us back to the airport. Uh, we flew back to Bogota that night. It was a Friday evening. Uh, we got to the uh, El Dorado airport, grabbed a taxi, believe it or not, back to the embassy. And my wife was uh, was working in the embassy in the DEA office at the time, and she got together with one of the other DEA agents' wives. And when we came in, they had uh, several cases of beer and pizzas waiting on us, and uh, most of the, the DEA personnel had snuck around because it was after embassy hours now. Um, they had big signs posted in our office with balloons. It was a celebration. Um, by this time, my wife and I had adopted our first daughter down there, so she was living with us. She was just an infant at the time. But uh, my wife, she knew what was going to happen that night, so she had uh, got this Colombian friend of ours to spend the night. Uh, she was kind of like a nanny anyway. And so she stayed home with her baby, and uh, we started partying, and we didn't get home until first light Saturday morning. It was an all-night <laughs> Very good. What, uh, you know, you mentioned your wife. I I probably should have asked this a minute ago, but I'm kind of fascinated. So she kind of, she was with you the whole time. Um, and you talked about the adrenaline of being there every day and you were obviously going out on raids and doing stuff, but I, what was it like for her? Cause I, I can't even imagine bringing a spouse into a, a situation like that. You know, it, it really, and this is true of all law enforcement spouses, um, it takes a special person to put up with this kind of lifestyle. Sure. Even if you're not in Columbia, if you're a police officer in the United States, you know, these guys are facing threats every day, especially uniformed police officers. Your wife or your husband doesn't know if you're going to come home alive that day, you know, and leave you uh, fatherless or motherless with the children. It takes a very special person. They got, they've got to have a tough persona to put up with that, with that type of lifestyle. And, uh, and I got to mention this, you know, because it shows in, in the beginning of season two of Narcos that my wife was frustrated with me and, and uh, you know, what was going on. And we had the baby and that she took the baby and went back to Miami. Well, that's absolutely not true. My wife never left. She stayed down there the entire time with me. Um, you know, she recognized the dangers. And she's a tough girl. You know, she's, uh, she's from West Virginia. She's a country girl. I'm a country boy. Uh, when I, I, got, <laughs> I always joke around, but this is absolutely true. I used to ride motorcycles. When I first met Connie, she had her own motorcycle. Now, how can you <laughs> not fall in love with a woman that owns her own motorcycle, right? There you go, yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, she worked at several different jobs in the embassy, and, and uh, actually, once we adopted our first daughter, Monica, down there, uh, she left the workforce and became a stay-home mom. And then, of course, the if you know the story, eventually in uh, May of 94, just prior to us transferring back to the United States, we adopted our second daughter down there. Wow. It was actually from Medellin. Her name's Mandy. Okay. Very, 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 very good. All right, guys, we'll start to wrap up here. This has been incredible. I truly appreciate the time. Again, the book is Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Um you know, Javi, Javi, I'll just ask both of you. I mean, you've kind of, we've kind of touched on it throughout, but 
Javier, how did you like the show? Did it depict you guys right? How did you enjoy it? Um, and then really, I guess I would ask, you know, the way the show kind of sets it up is that you kind of went right into kind of going to the next cartel, which for people who don't know was the Cali cartel, uh, and, and really kind of doing that whole deal. What was, uh, one, did you like the show? Two, what was kind of life like, uh, you know, kind of after, you know, Pablo and everything? Yeah, the show's a, it's a great show. And, and remember, and I think we've uh, hinted around, and I think Steve said it too, it's, there's artistic licenses, which is what's going to make the show, which is what people want to watch. They don't want to watch boring stuff. Uh, the, the chronology is accurate. Of course, there's some you know literary licenses in there, but it, it, it's a great show. It, you know, when I first saw it, you know, it's like, wow, I don't think people are going to watch it, but boy, was I wrong. That was <laughs> yeah. very wrong. Why did you, you know, think that? Why did you think that? It's following all over the world. I mean, uh, Javier, why it, did you it, think? It, it, it's, a, it's a great show. Uh, uh, Pedro Pascal does a great job, obviously. Of course, I, I agree, but I don't. I don't smoke, or <laughs> or like the buddy says, says, "Yeah, man, you're you're killing people. You had sex, then you go out to lunch. <laughs> like what the hell, man? You know." Uh, so it, it's a uh, it's it's a very good show. I recommend if you have not seen it, please please watch it. Uh, just remember, there's artistic licenses. The chronology is accurate. Uh, the actors are great guys, and uh, yeah, I really really enjoyed it. And this is why. Now, you know, when Steve and I, he's, we've alluded to, we, we have a speaking business and we tell the actual story of the actual, uh, basically it's the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar. We take it from the beginning all the way to the end. We have original videos, original photos. So it's, like I said, and I think that we all know that this is part of history. I think Aaron, you alluded to it, and it's uh, history that uh, happened and we can't uh, ignore it. Real quick, why did you think people weren't Javier? Why did you think people weren't going to watch the show? You know what? I, you know, I'm not a because we weren't TV guys. We weren't. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Uh, so when I first like, man, you know, uh, we're not TV people. So I, you know, I'll, we we've done some documentaries, mm -hmm. but you know, shows and documentaries are, are very different. Uh, but then all of a sudden, it's like we started getting feedback, and then people like, man, we love it. Like, wow. So that that to me was surprising. Very good. Uh, last question. This is it, Stephen. I mean, is uh, one I would ask you obviously too. Uh, you've kind of mentioned a few times, how, you know, the show and some things that were inaccurate, but for the most part, that you appreciate everything they did. Did you like the show? And then my last question for both of you, um, and you can take it, Steve. Is did I miss anything? Is there anything that either uh, you know you guys are proud of or? you liked in the show or there's something about Pablo that people don't know that they need to know. Uh, I can, I'll just throw it to you, let you take it wherever you want, Steve, but is there anything I missed, uh, you know, throughout this kind of conversation? Yeah. There, so, um, I love the show. I'll be honest with you. I was like Javier. We didn't honestly did not think that the show would be any, we didn't think it'd be hit at all. <laughs> we thought Netflix and Eric Noon and then we're wasting the money, but uh shows you how much we know about Hollywood. So, Love the show. It's it's an exciting series. Obviously, it's not not all true. It's not hundred percent true, just like Javier told you. But uh, love the actors, the actresses. You know, uh, Joanna Christie played my wife. She's actually British, and she was able to hide her British wow. accent throughout the I would first have never two guessed. seasons. And, and just a beautiful young lady. Um, the two actors that played us, uh, Boyd and Pedro. You know, 
we actually arranged it with DEA and with Netflix to fly them in, and we had them embedded with a DEA training class for a week in Quantico, wow. Virginia, at the academy. That's cool. So they were they were having to get up in the morning and, and do PT with the cadets. They were having to put the boxing gloves on, learn how to fight. They learned how to do surveillance, work undercover, sign range, the whole ball of wax. So uh, that was a lot of fun. That's where we really got to be friends. Um, and then, but one guy we haven't mentioned is the guy that played Pablo Wagner Mora. Sure. This guy, you know, I mean, we love Pedro and Boyd the best. But Wagner just did one heck of a job. I mean, I, I can't imagine they would have found any actor that could have done a better job playing Pablo Escobar. And you know what? The guy did not speak Spanish. See, I've read he that. Moved to, yeah, he moved to Medellin a couple months before filming and learned Spanish. Wow. Holy cow. That he, he just really captured uh, Escobar's mannerisms. You know, they put him in a fat man suit. I think he gained 40 pounds at one point hmm. to play it, and they still had to put him in a fat man suit. But... Just did a phenomenal job, you know, and, and in real life, he's one of the nicest, most humble people you'll ever meet. I mean, just a, a real gentleman. And his wife is, too. She's a real sweet lady. Um, so, obviously, big fans of the show. What it did for us, quite honestly, is really kick off our speaking business. We just started our fifth year. Wow. Uh, our agent calls it the world tour, you know. <laughs> uh, we've been to the continent now, except Africa and Antarctica. Uh, we were just in Sacramento this past weekend at a corporate event, so... Things that you never expect to happen in your life. And just, I'm going to throw this out there. If people are interested, you yes. can get our book at, at any of the online booksellers, but you can also get it on our website. And if, from our website, you can get autographs and personalized copies. Great. Uh, there's an interactive calendar on there that shows when and where we'll be next speaking. Uh, there's a lot of information from the fans on there, pictures, videos, all kinds of stuff. So if you want to learn more about us, it's www.deanarcos.com. Dot com d e a n a r c o s dot com and that that was actually going to be a follow up question of mine if you know we have people from all spectrums of life uh young old you know work whatever um if somebody is interested in having you speak or at their event or at their corporate event they can find all the information on the website there absolutely just uh, go to our website and there's a uh, there's a way to contact them on there i think it says speaking um, that comes to Javier and I directly, as well as our agent. We're represented by Greater Talent Network, um, and we'll get it set up for you. So when you guys were, uh, you know, in uh, the, the barracks in Columbia, did you ever think you would need an agent to, to handle all these requests here? If I had told, <laughs> if I had told a 28-year-old yeah. Stephen Murphy, hey, uh, we're going to have to go through your agent to get a hold of you in 2020, what would you have said? <laughs> Nah, not at all, man. This has all been surprising for us, so it's something we never expected, and I never expected something like this to, you know, in one thing, like, and I think we've hit it on is, like I said, Pablo Escobar was no Robin Hood. Pablo Escobar should not be glamorized. Mm -hmm. And the real heroes, the search block of the Colombia National Police, Colonel Martinez, General Walter Silva. Gentlemen, this was unbelievable. I had a blast. I, I know people are going to enjoy it. I want to thank you guys again. The book is called Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. It is by Stephen Murphy, Javier Pena. Their stories were told on Narcos Season 1 and Season 2. Narcos Season, I think, 5 is coming up here in a couple days. Uh, and you can find out more information on them and what they're doing at deanarcos.com. Guys, this was – I had fun. I had a blast. I genuinely appreciate the time. Thank you both so much. And – uh, enjoy the world tour. All right. 
Thank you so much, man. We appreciate you having us on the show, buddy.